Welcome to the View from the Penalty Box podcast with Cam Connor. Classic hockey stories from one of hockey's toughest enforcers. Cam Connor with my son Chris Connor, episode 30. So, Dad, it looks like your name has come up a little bit in the news with Montreal Canadiens and Toronto Maple Leafs potentially meeting in the playoffs. I know it's only middle of February, but it seems like people are predicting that that could happen. And so, uh, Hockey Night in Canada showed your overtime goal, and people have been tweeting you about it. So, I know you've talked about that goal a few times. But we've had a lot of new listeners since, I think, episode three or four. So do you want to talk a little bit about the goal? And then you could talk about the tweet that you addressed. Right, Chris. It was the double overtime goal in the third playoff game. You know, you win four games and the other team's eliminated. So it was quarterfinals against Leafs. Double overtime. And I, you know, had, what, five periods to watch Paul Mateer and net. And he, he, he's a little petite goalie, and he had to come out uh, when someone is going to shoot from the top of the circle, and he had to challenge the goalie because he's so tiny. Um, there's so much net to shoot at. So I told myself if I got an opportunity to come in one-on-one against Palmatier, I was going to fake his, put my head down, and uh, like fake his shot, and I know he's coming out, he's predictable. And then I was going to go just keep the puck and go around him. And theory, I should have an empty net. So I actually got that opportunity. I came down. I went to my backhand as if I was going to shoot a backhand. And I ended up losing the puck between my backhand and my forehand. And it went through Palmatier's legs and scored a goal. That was probably my biggest adjustment from the World Hockey Association, where I had an inch and a inch and three quarters to two inch curve on my stick. And I've used that for five years. So I, I figured out how to use it. And when you go to the National League, you could only allow a half inch curve, which when I look at my stick, it looks straight. So there was a lot of problems that year making that adjustment. And so when I did go from the back end to the forehand, you know, I've never tried to pretend that I was trying to put it in the way it went in. But at the end of the day, you know, my teammates were ecstatic that I scored this goal. We won the game, and that's really the bottom line. I've seen guys score their first goal in their career off their butt the puck went. And you're just proud, okay, you got a goal. And so it wasn't, you know, a slap shot top corner, which I would have liked to have. But at the end of the day, I scored the goal. Um, and all's Paul Mateer has to do is keep his legs closed. That's all he had to do, and he would have stopped the puck. So I did my job, and he let it in. So that's the end of that story. And just for some context, the the tweet that you're responding to is someone sent you or posted about um, how Paul Mateer said in Tiger Williams' book, that's one thing I can't do, defend against a guy who doesn't know what he's doing. And so you've never said that the goal was pretty, but to say that you don't know what you're doing that's more of an insult and seems like sour grapes. Well, it is sour grapes because, you know, he's trying to deflect that the goal went in on him. There's uh, how many goals a year go in and uh, the goalie didn't see it. Uh, the puck got deflected. It, 
you know, there's so many ways, and the goalie's got a tough job, there's no doubt about it. But again, when you don't have your stick on the ice and you have your legs open and the puck goes in, just accept the goal went in, whether you consider it lucky or not. But I don't think you should be cutting anybody up. I feel bad that you did. And so why do you think that it's been since 1979 that the Leafs and the Habs haven't played each other? Well, I mean, there's probably various reasons, but I know uh, being a Canadian and watching hockey, that is almost like a, like, it's like a Calgary-Edmonton. People in Alberta can't wait to see that rivalry. And it's no difference. When there were six teams, there was only Toronto Maple Leafs and Montreal. And it was almost like the French versus the English. There was a lot on the line there. And Montreal traditionally would kick Toronto's butt. This year, it'll be pretty interesting if they do make the playoffs. Toronto has got a powerhouse team. When they get their act together, their goalie can stop the puck. And they've got some... You don't want to exchange goals with the Toronto Maple Leafs. They've got a lot of talent on the forward line. And so if those two teams meet, and Carey Price is going to be a big key if Montreal wins, he's going to have to just like be a sheet of plywood in net. It'll be an excellent, excellent series because it's not only about talent in the playoffs, it's emotions that come into play. And when you know, you know, you're Montreal and you're taking on the Leafs, you just say, we're not losing to that team. And you seem to play at another level. And having said that, that's the same as Toronto. We're taking on Montreal. We're going to play our best. So it'll be a really good hockey if they play each other. And if you think about it, it's the 40th anniversary of that Stanley Cup. So if there's a time for Toronto and Montreal to meet again in the playoffs, this would be the year. Okay, so we have a question. And if you have any questions you want to send in, just email us at viewfromthepenaltybox at gmail.com. And you can always follow my dad on Twitter, Cam Connor NHL. I, we're also on Facebook, Instagram. We're, we're slowly making the rounds to all the social media. But uh, So the question is titled, Houston Hockey. Dear Mr. Connor, hello, my name is David. I'm 17 years old, and I'm from Houston, Texas. I'm a big hockey fan, and even though Houston doesn't have a team, I advocate for the growth of the sport, even teaching my friends the rules, stuff about the league, and hockey's Houston's hockey past. I was wondering if you have any interesting stories about your time in the WHA with the Arrows, possibly any old memorabilia from the WHA. Genuine Arrows gear from that time is hard to come by nowadays. Everything I can find is usually modern Gordie Howe jersey remakes. I appreciate you taking time out of your day to read my email. Thank you, David. And so you did at least a couple episodes on the WHA and specifically Houston. So there's a bunch of stories in the archives, but do you, if there's anything you could think of, but is there any memorabilia that you have that's of interest? Well, if I'm not mistaken, I haven't skated for three years, so I haven't really looked at my hockey bag. But I think I've got Houston Arrow gloves. I've got Houston Arrow pants. I've got uh, my jerseys. So, yes, I still have memorabilia. No question. And uh, you're right, it's probably hard to come by. But, I, you know, when you're talking about Houston, I've got, a, you know, we'll talk later about Bill Deneen and Terry Ruskowski. i got a few stories about those guys. One of the things that just pops in my mind is we used to practice at a place called Sharpstown in Houston. And attached to our dressing room within this complex was a sporting goods store. 
And I remember one day, I was maybe 22, 23, I'd left the dressing room after practice and I was walking by. And there was this old man and a little boy looking in the window of the sporting goods store. And the little boy said, Grandpa, can I get those pair of skates, please? And he said, well, you know, they're a little expensive, maybe when you get older. And I couldn't help it over here. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with being nice to people. There doesn't have to be any motive. Let's just be nice to people. And believe me, I mean, I have my moments that maybe I'm not so good. But this particular time, when I heard the little boy asking, I walked over to the older gentleman and I said, well, you know what? We fly out to Toronto in a little, you know, later this afternoon, and I'll have some spare time in Toronto. And the skates are probably a lot cheaper in Canada, plus, you know, the U.S. dollar versus Canadians. So I could go ahead, you give me a size, and I'll purchase a pair of skates and bring it back, and uh, you'll get it for a good price and allow your grandson to start skating. And this older man, he and the little boy, of course, got excited, but he politely declined. And no, fair enough. That's fair enough. So, oh, a month or six weeks go by, and it's towards the end of the season. And our team was looking at folding, but we had to sell X amount of season tickets. And so the drive was on. If we reached that certain number, then the team was going to be around longer. And I had a seven-year contract. I was just finishing my second year there. And I, I really enjoyed Houston. And it was somewhere I would have liked to have stayed. Anyways, about six weeks later, the PR guy for Houston Arrows phoned me up. And he said, Cam, did you talk to an older man over at Sharpstown about picking up some skates for him? And I kind of forgot about it. And I said, yeah, I did. You know, I, he goes, do you know who that gentleman was? I said, no. And apparently, the PR guy said he was one of the wealthiest men in all of Texas. And this gentleman had called up and he had said, you know what, I'm going to buy X amount of thousands of seats, like a thousand, I think he told me, or 600, like quite a bit. And he said, because if you have people like that on the Houston Arrows, we need them in Houston. And you know, this isn't really about me. Like all the players on our Houston team, they were wonderful individuals that loved playing in that city. They treated everybody in the community. We went out to the schools. Um, sometimes, you know, you're forced to do this. In Houston, the players that we had there, they truly enjoyed getting out and selling the game of hockey to the community. So I never knew who the guy was, but I did the right thing to see if I could help this old man. And it almost helped. I stay in Houston, which would have been a little self-serving for me because I would have liked to have stayed there. So I always think about that in Houston and, you know, try to do the right thing. And it doesn't cost me any money. Or, you know, it's, it's, it's it, was, it was the right thing to do. So I always remember that. So, Chris, be nice to people. And we'll see if uh, they get an NHL team because I know that's in the news. I know a lot of people in Houston are really trying to see if NHL will come to Houston so I guess we'll go from there to talk about, you have a story from, and I don't, hopefully I said his name right, Serge Baudouin? Yes, Baudouin. Serge Baudouin. It was, uh, was kind of interesting. And who is Serge Baudouin? Well, <laughs> Serge is a defenseman that played in Phoenix with me in the world hockey before I went to Houston. He was, uh, he was about 6'3 and 245. And so today it's not uncommon to have forwards defensemen at 245. 
back at that time, he was a big boy. He had a Fu Manchu and he was scary looking. He, he told me he was shaving since he's 11 years old, Serge. So he was somebody that, uh, and his wife was about, I'm going to say, five foot one. And we had uh, played a game that night in Phoenix, and I think it was uh, the New Year's Eve. So probably six or seven of us went to the bar. We were sitting at the bar, and there was a table of four or five wives who were sitting at their separate table, and their husbands were at the bar with us. And so Serge was ordering tequila, and we were drinking tequila shots. And I couldn't tell you how many we had, but it was, and I've never been a big drinker, but it was at a point where I was feeling no pain drinking these tequilas. And so Serge, he told the bartender, he with his French accent, he said, bartender, give me, give me the bottle. So he just grabbed the bottle and he was drinking the tequila right out of the bottle. Man, that'll catch up to you. So Serge is sitting next to me and I happened to be looking around. And then I saw the table of wives. Serge's wife had ordered a drink that came with a flame on it. So I'm watching her. And again, I'm feeling no pain. And I see her pick up this glass and she brings it close to her mouth to blow it out. She must have had hairspray in her hair. But this flame jumped from the glass into her hair. And she didn't catch on right away that her hair was on fire. And all of a sudden she realizes she puts her drink down. And she's banging the top of her head. And she's putting out this fire on her hair. And smoke is coming up under her fingers. And she got up and she ran to the bathroom crying. So I said, holy cow. So I said, Serge, Serge. And he took another swig out of his out of the bottle. And he said, yeah, Cammy." I said, Serge, your wife's hair just caught on fire. She's burning it. She just ran to the bathroom crying. And he took another swig. Didn't even look around. And he just said, that's okay, Cammy. She needed a haircut anyways. And I just started laughing. So that particular night, so his wife comes out of the bathroom and she's been crying. And so she took the car keys and went home. And so there was one other guy on her team who hadn't drank very much. And so Serge needed a ride home. So we carried Serge into, threw him in the back of this car and uh, barely got him in there. He's passed out. And we drive him home in Phoenix, and he's still passed out in the back seat. This must be 2 in the morning, and we got to leave, you know, like 6.30 in the morning to get to the airport. So we're not going to get a lot of sleep. So we pulled Serge out of the back seat, and we just threw him in his front yard. And then we took off home and set the alarm and got up, and we had to come back and get Serge. And we come back, he's still sleeping in his front yard. And so we just picked him up, threw him in the vehicle and took him to the airport and he had to buy extra clothes etc etc and a jacket on the road so i thought that was pretty funny so i just googled him and here's some trivia did he make the nhl or not i'm gonna say Serge never did he did play in the nhl he played three games for the atlanta flames in 79 80 okay good for Serge. and Serge, you still have my tennis racket by the way in case you're listening Chris, I do have one more Houston Arrow story that just kind of popped in my head. There was a team called the Birmingham Bulls. They were, they probably had five pretty crazy tough guys on that team, including Serge was on that team. And they had a guy who the NHL did not want him around anymore. 
So, I don't know. They were trying to put a tough team together in Birmingham. So, they traded a guy named Vaslav Nedimansky. He was like the captain of the Czech national team. A very good hockey player. So, the National Hockey League traded Vaslav Nedimansky for... And so, the World Hockey sent Nedimansky to the NHL. And the NHL sent Durbano into the World Hockey. And so, he ended up in, in Birmingham. And I have heard stories about about this guy, Debato, and he was, you know, he's dead now, so I, I could talk about him because he can't come get me anymore. But he was a crazy guy, and it's like Muhammad Ali said. He said, nobody's afraid of a tough guy, but everybody's afraid of a crazy man. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't want to fight this guy. I think I could have beat him up. But I know that if I beat him up, the rest of my life, when I played against him, you got to look over your shoulder because he's going to get you back. And he was somebody that I perceived that would spear you in the face, hit you over the head, cross-check you across the neck from behind. And you know what? I'd rather not fight the guy and not have to worry about somebody like that sneak attacking you from behind. Well, Terry Raskowski was our captain there, and he got tangled up with DeBano, and DeBano dropped his gloves, and so Terry was a good fighter. And uh, I'm going to say Terry probably weighed in the area of 180 pounds. And he could throw him just like jackhammer. Bang, 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 bang. So him and DeBano went at it. And DeBano outweighed him and got on top of Terry. And he took his fingers with long fingernails. And he tried to gouge Terry's eyes. So he scratched Terry's eyes, one of his eyes. And Terry couldn't see out of it for a while. Terry had to leave the ice with a vision problem. And Bill Deneen, who was our coach at the time, and Bill was a kind, kind man, and the players loved him. And Bill loved his players like he truly did. Scotty Bowman, he would treat you pretty rough and aggressive and talk down to you. Bill was not like that, and you would play for this man. And he loved Terry, and they were pretty close. And so after the game, Bill felt so bad about what DeBano did to Terry that after the game, a little time went by, then he went into the Birmingham Bulls dressing room looking for DeBano. And he wasn't in there. And then he rented a car and he was told, you know, some of the bars that DeBano might have been going to that night. And so I talked to Bill the next day. I said, well... What did you do? He said, well, I went in the dressing room because I know DeBano could beat me up, but I just wanted to give one shot, he said, for doing that to Terry. So Bill was going to sacrifice himself just to get one shot in. He's going to sucker DeBano, which would not have a happy ending. And then when he wasn't in there, he drove around to some of these Birmingham bars. And fortunately for Bill, he couldn't find DeBano that night. But uh, you're not going to see too many coaches that are going to do that. So that's another Houston Arrow story. And if you look up um, Steve Durbano, it actually says his name is Steve Mental Case Durbano. So oh, I believe it. Yeah, and yeah. and he's he's dead. Like I said, he's dead today, and he was in prison because he went to some foreign com- country and he was trying to bring cocaine back into the country, and he hollowed out like the heel of his shoe. And he filled it full of cocaine, and he got busted at the airport. So he had to serve time in prison. He was a crazy guy. He really was. And just like a guy named Pierre LaRouche. Some people know who Pierre is. He scored 50 goals twice. 
in the NHL. He played with DeBano, and he said that DeBano was one mental case, and that, um, you know, beginning of the year, you got to do a physical, and they put you on a stationary bike, and they hook you up to all sorts of contraptions, and the you know, and you're doing your best, just very painful to try to make sure you all your, you know, everything you're doing shows top notch that you've been working out. So when the guys came into the dressing room and DeBano's doing his, I think he had a stress test he was doing on the stationary bike. And he said, he come in and DeBano's having a smoke at the same time he's doing this exercise. So that just tells you what this guy was all about. So I have a question for you and it might've changed uh, since you played, but when you go into a pro hockey locker room, is there logic to where people sit, where their nameplates are, and who sits where, and who's sitting next to who? And I guess you can comment when you played. Yeah, I, I think it hasn't changed. It's like you, when you go in there, you can't say, oh, here's where I'm sitting. First of all, when you go into a team, the guys already have their stall. And most guys are superstitious. They're not moving. This is where I sit, and I've been here for 10 years or 5 years or 3 years. That's where they sit. So you just get assigned a spot. But like a new team like the Edmonton Oilers, when I joined Edmonton, the dressing room was wide open. And so between Glenn Sather, the coach, GM, and whoever else, they figure out who should be sitting next to whom in the dressing room. So so it, it's there's a little bit of thought that goes into it initially as people come and go then it's just pretty well, there's an empty stall, that's where you're sitting. And as we were getting ready for this uh, episode, you had mentioned that you had the op- opportunity to invest in rollerblades or inline skates before they came on the market, and you didn't. And then you talked about another story, or you told me a story about another potential investment, although not to do with you, but it's kind of interesting. So if you want to bring that up. And then after, we will talk about bench brawls. Well, I know what you're talking about here, Chris, about that story. So basically what I was telling my son was back when I played with Phoenix Roadrunners, and we're probably talking about 74, 75, thereabouts. The owner of the of the hockey team in Phoenix. His name was Gary Hooker. And Gary was a friendly, fine, fine man. He was friendly to everybody, whether you were somebody as wealthy as him or you were a server at a table. He always treated everybody well, and he was a good role model for me. And so Gary, he took a liking to me, and he, I had broke my ankle, and he phoned me up, and he had said to me, hey, why don't you come down? Do you like to fish? I love to fish. So why don't you come down to San Diego, and we'll go fishing. So I said, on his yacht, I said, love to. And I remember we get down there. Well, I got two stories coming up here. We went down there, and so we're going out to sea for about three days, and he said, I'll supply all the booze and food, and I'll have a captain. He said, you just pay for fuel. I said, yeah, okay, no problem. Well, little did I know how much fuel a freaking yacht can carry, right? It cost me a fortune. I don't remember my numbers, but I think Gary sucked me in on that one. But with with Gary, we're sitting on his yacht at the San Diego Yacht Club. So just picture a, a, like a, a pier, and you get the yachts that would back in on one side of the pier and then back in on the other side. So the gentleman that uh, shared like was right across from Gary's boat. Um, he jumped onto Gary's boat, and that, of course, was called a happy hooker. 
And we're just sitting there having a few drinks, you know, on Gary's yacht. And this guy comes over, and he was a very nice fella. He was talking to us. And then he said, geez, Gary, I'm a little bit worried. He said, I put a lot of my wealth into this new product that's coming out. And I, uh, I I'm kind of having second thoughts now. I don't know if I should be should have done that. And so Gary and I said, well, what did you put your money into? I'll never forget. He goes, well, it's this new product that's coming out. It's called a microwave oven. And so both Gary and I, we, we said, well, what's a microwave oven? And he said, well, I'm not really sure, he said, but I understand it's something that heats your gravy up faster. And so little did we know that uh, everybody, every house is going to have a microwave. But, you know, when you think back, you think microwaves have been around for a long time. But again, 74, 75 was pretty well the first time I ever heard of it. So it took a little while to develop, and uh, now it's in every single house. Do you remember this guy's name? We could look him up. Well, I'm guessing the name Chris Murray comes to me, but, I, you know, I'm guessing. Chris could be right, or Murray could be right, or they both could be right. But, again, that's from a few years back. And don't forget, Chris, I've had concussions, buddy. So one of the articles and videos in the news was the recent hockey brawl between Acadia and St. FX, uh, the university teams. And so I know you saw, you watched the video. and Yeah, the highlights. Uh, yeah, the highlights. And uh, we thought, why don't we talk about bench brawls you've been in, what you thought of that bench brawl, and just uh, bench brawls in general. Well, you know, I'm kind of going against the grain here, so I know people will be mad, but I didn't think that was so bad. I mean, I, you know, you hear people talking, oh, we're going to suspend, and we, there was so many people, and I, I don't know if they're talking like they're really upset because it was a bench brawl, or they're upset because somebody you know, talk something sexual to another player. Like, I'm not really sure what was really the, the big issue there. If we're talking about somebody said something to you, you know what? You could just get that guy back later in the game or, you know, this didn't happen to be a bench brawl. And they called it a bench brawl. But when I saw the highlights, I've been in three bench brawls, okay? So when I saw the highlights... I said, well, that's not so bad, you know. And the announcer is going, oh, I've been in watching hockey for 30 years and I've never seen anything like this. Well, my friend, when there were six teams in the league, in the NHL, that was a regular occurrence because if one team, let's just say, you know, two opposing players start fighting on the ice. Well, back in those days, everybody dropped their gloves and then you pair off with somebody. You didn't have to fight, but you just held somebody. Well, usually that would cause a second fight or a third fight because if I perceived that you were trying to be a little too aggressive, there's a fight going on and you were trying to be, then I would pick it up a notch and then it goes a second or third. So they switched that rule. When there's a fight, nobody pairs off but the two guys fighting and everybody else just stays away. All right, so that, that prevented a lot of extra problems. But when I watched this brawl, most of the players were still on the bench. The guys I saw on the ice, they still held, they still had their helmets on and they got visors. So I don't think there was anybody hurt in the brawl. You know, there was a lot of people on the ice that were running around. But 
That's just my take on it. I didn't think it was anything I hadn't seen before. And what I've seen before, that was pretty tame. But again, there's some people that just haven't seen what a lot of other people have seen in the past. And I know when I played with Phoenix in the world hockey, the guys that have seen the movie Slapshot, and you've seen, you know, those guys that played in the movie Slapshot, those were real players. And they came from a team called Johnstown Chiefs. And uh, they were a pretty crazy group. And they were brought up, the core of their fighters, all their fighters were brought up to the Minnesota Fighting Saints and uh, for the first game in Phoenix against our team. And we had a pretty tough team. And um, we did not know before the game that their coach had told these guys that were brought up that unless they got something going that night, they're all getting set down the very next day. So as it happened, there was a guy named Paul Hogram on that team, and Paul is the president of the Philly Flyers right now. Paul was a big, tough American boy. You know what? He come to play every night, every game, and I admire Paul quite a bit. He's a, he's a man's man. And so Paul and my roommate, a guy named Barry Dean, were fighting. I had just finished my shift. And you know what? I can't remember if I talked about this story, but I, I'll repeat it anyways. I was just finishing my shift, and I see my roommates getting beat up by Holgram, so I got to help them. So I didn't punch Holgram. I just kind of jumped him and landed on top of him, so covering his head so that my roommate couldn't get any cheap shots in, and that was going to be the end of the fight. Well, that was all that the Minnesota Fighting Saints needed to start a brawl. So the whole team comes flying on the ice, and I remember I heard after the game, some of the fans said to me, did you know that Joe Daggett, who, who was our play-by-play announcer, he thought that he turned the radio off and it was going to a commercial, but it was actually live. And he said that, damn, Connor, he started this brawl. So he was cutting me up on the air, but he didn't know he was on the air. He later apologized. Now I got a guy named Kurt Brackenberry grabs me by the back of the net, so neck. So, like I said, I just finished my shift and I was wrestling around with Holgram because Holgram thinks I want to fight him. So, then, then Kurt Brackenberry, who was a fighter, pretty tough boy, he was fresh. And I, had, like I said, I just finished my shift in a wrestling match. So, yeah, I'm a little tired. So, we go at him. Holgram, uh, excuse me, um, Kurt Brackenberry. We go at it. And, and the, it's a total bench ball. We didn't wear helmets or very few helmets. And uh, so... We had a, a real good first scrap, and then he had me over the boards. I had him over the boards, and we're catching our breath. And he said, ready to go again? I said, not yet. So he gave me 30 seconds more to get my breath. Then I said, I'm ready. We let go. We went at it again. And then we're hanging over the boards again, getting our breath. And he said, you ready? Yep. We went at it a third time. And then after the third fight, Kurt Brackenberry said to me, hey, Cap, why don't we fight somebody else? And I said, Okay. And so you should have seen there was some guys with some wicked cuts. And I'm not saying this is the way to play hockey. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, when I see what they're making a big deal about, it's, it's, if you've seen the, if you followed the game more than 30 years, you've seen what I've seen. And again, I've participated in this. And it's, it's not fun. It's like chaos and the refs can't get in there. And there's many fights going on. So, we probably had about 
uh, I think we drew about eight, nine thousand to that game. And eventually, you know, the game's over. They got order restored, and the game keeps playing. And we played in Minnesota probably four or five days later. And so we know it's going to be another rough game. That same night in Minnesota, the North Stars, the Minnesota North Stars, were taking on the Stanley Cup Montreal Canadiens. They drew just a little more than 6,000 people to that game. Our game was over 19,000 showed up to that game. And it was another aggressive game. And unfortunately, I was in there thick of things. Survived and did pretty well in all my fights. But, uh, you know, so my take on that, you know, again, I, I don't mean to piss anybody off. But I, I personally did. It wasn't much to it. I didn't see anybody hurt. Most of them still had their helmets on. They still had their jerseys on. I mean, usually in those brawls, there's guys skating around with no jerseys. They've been pulled off. So this wasn't so bad. So, Chris, you're probably going to get me in trouble here by asking me that question. And did you find, before we wrap it up, did you find that playing in junior versus playing in the WHA or NHL, there was more bench brawls? I could only think of one big bench brawl that we had, but it was our coach who, you know, we played a team called New Westminster Bruins. And uh, they beat us in their own rink. They only lost, I think, one game the whole year or two games in their own rink. And they really, they all bumped us. They physically all played us and we lost. So our coach, Patty Janelle, didn't say too much to us. And so we played two or three more games on this road trip. We came back to play New West again. We're in the dressing room before we go out for warm-ups. Uh, well, excuse me, we went for warm-ups, and after warm-ups, they're flooding the ice, and our coach went berserk on us. He pulled out a newspaper article from the last time we were there, and it says, Flint Flon Bombers lose tough image. So he went ballistics. He said, I don't care what the score is. I don't care if you win. You go out there, and you get those guys back, and no way we're going to be pushed around. So... I was on the starting lineup, Kim Claxon, a guy named Jerry Rollins, and I can't, and a guy named Ray Maluda. So we had some pretty tough boys. And so when the other team sees who we're starting, they start their guys, their tough boys. And as soon as the puck was dropped, <laughs> we didn't even go for the puck. It went, everybody just squared off. And so all six people on the ice brawled. And um, we got kicked out of the game as, as we should have. And so we had to wear suits. And I remember the guys in our team that got kicked out, we were sitting in the stands watching the game, but the fans were coming at us. So we had to leave the stands. And in order for us to watch the game, we had to sit on the benches, on our bench, in our suits, uh, to keep away from the fans that were coming at us. So that, that was junior. And I also remember the year before at 18, I went into Medicine Hat, and it was so rough in there. And, of course, I had to be in the middle of everything. I had three different jerseys that night because I had two. My first two jerseys were ripped off my back. So that's a scary way to play hockey. Um, it's certainly not like that today, and thank God for the guys playing today. But back in the day, it was pretty rough playing hockey. It wasn't for the faint of heart, that's for sure. And we'll end this with uh, just a, a quick, fun story with Dason going Muhammad Ali. Well, what that is. So, Samikos and I were buddies. Like I've said before in my podcast, I was Samikos' first fight, his first shift in pro hockey. And he was my third fight that shift. And uh, 
as that fight ended, I didn't have any sweater on for that fight. At the end of it, it got ripped off me. But with Semenko, when I now I played with him in Edmonton the first year, and you know what, you fight the guys and you don't like him, he's on the other team. But there's uh, the mutual admiration that we both showed up and did what we had to do uh, to support our teams and to help win. And Semenko and I became best friends. We were we lived thirty seconds apart. We drive to the games together. We hung around together. We would play tennis and racquetball in the off season. And so one day, Smix comes over to my house, and I had two Ranger jackets, and I actually designed them. And uh, on our practice jersey, it they had these because New York's New York City is called the Big Apple, and so on our practice jersey, they had two cross hockey sticks with a red apple with a green leaf sticking out of it, which is the symbol of, you know, the Big Apple. So I said, man, that would be great to put on our jackets. So anyways, I got this jacket designed. So they stitched on the back the Big Apple cross hockey sticks, the green leaf. And they have the city skylines, which the jacket is has. Two, they had the twin towers in the background. So obviously that's a collector's item. But Semenko looked at, because I had two of them, he said, oh, man, that is so good. Can I have one? I said, no. He said, well, what am I going to do to get one? I said, what do you got to trade? Well, Semenko had earlier fought Muhammad Ali. I don't know. And it's, and you can Google that. And uh, Mark Messier's uncle um, knew the entourage with Ali. And so they arranged a three-round exhibition in Montreal, in Edmonton, uh, for the two of them to spar. And so Semenko said, well, I've got Muhammad Ali's boxing shorts that I could uh, give you in exchange for the for the jacket. Well, I'm a big fan, like a lot of people of Muhammad Ali. I said, deal. So Semenko went home, got him, came back, give me Muhammad Ali's boxing shorts. And, uh, you know, I probably should have had him write something out that just said, these are you know, Muhammad Ali's shorts that he gave me when I fought him. And, but I never did. I just, I'd never really thought about selling them. And one day this collector in Edmonton asked me if I had anything I wanted to sell. And I always got stuff I'd like to sell. No problems there. So I said, well, because I just, you know, I just, it's just sitting in a trunk. I said, well, I got Muhammad Ali's boxer shorts. He said, really, where'd you get that? So I explained, I got them from Semenko when he fought Ali. He says, let me think about that. So he phones me a few days later. He goes, well, I just Googled the fight. He said, both of them were wearing sweatpants in the fight. So Semenko sucked me in, so I don't know whose boxing shorts I got. Okay. Well, thanks, everyone. Until next time, I'm Chris. And I'm Cam. Thank you.